From famous historical locations to lesser-known areas found in small towns, history leaves shadows that people today can still see. Let's find out their stories together on this episode of Historically Haunted. Hello everyone and welcome to Historically Haunted. I am your host Ariel and today we will be talking about the history and paranormal activity found at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. This location was suggested from Elise and her children Leah and Ivan. Thank you guys so much for the suggestion. This place has such a cool history and I had so much fun learning all about the location and it has a lot of paranormal activity. My voice might sound a little weird and a little congested and a little up and down and that's because it's allergy season at my house. Um, We haven't had a lot of rain this year, and the little rain we did have just made everything bloom all at once because now it is a really warm day. So I'm really congested. I took allergy medicine, but it's, I don't know, it doesn't seem to be working yet. So anyway, that's why my voice sounds funny. I just wanted everyone to know I'm not sick. I just have allergies. As always, I wanted to thank my executive producers, aka my Patreon supporters. I have decided to call you guys executive producers from now on because it sounds a lot more fancy than just saying my Patreons. And you guys are the ones who keep the lights here at Historically Haunted On, so thank you guys so much. Speaking of, I wanted to thank my newest executive producers, Donald, Mary, James, and Eric. Thank you guys so much for joining the support for the show. To anyone who has ever left a comment or sent me an email or wrote me a review for my show, I wanted to say thank you and let you know how much I appreciate all of you. So let's jump into this episode. Fort Leavenworth opened in 1827 and it is still in operation as a U.S. Army installation, which is why I was so intrigued to find out that there was an article in the U.S. Army website about a haunted home at the fort. So I will dive into all of that and the history after, of course, our monstrous moment. For centuries, people have told stories of having run-ins with strange beasts in forests, monsters in the sea, and encounters from beyond the stars. I like to call these monstrous moments, and I invite you to listen to this week's monstrous encounter. Today's monstrous moment lands in the realm of UFOs. During the evening hours of September 12, 1952 in West Virginia, there was a famous alien encounter that was such a big deal it even triggered an investigation by Project Blue Book. Today, this encounter is known as the Flatwoods Monster. Braxton County, West Virginia, on the evening of September 12, 1952, three boys were playing outside in the schoolyard. The boys' names were Ed May, age 13, and Freddie May, age 12. These brothers were also playing with their 10-year-old friend named Tommy Hayer. The sun was about to set, and they were enjoying one of the last of the late summer evenings, playing on the playground, when they suddenly saw a pulsing red light in the sky. They watched as this red light streaked across the sky and then crashed on a wooded hilltop of a farm that was nearby. The boys ran back to Freddie and Ed's house, and they told their mother about what they had seen. They all ran back outside to go have a closer look at what could have landed on the farm. By this time, two other boys had joined the group, one family dog and a West Virginia National Guardsman named Eugene Lemon. Mrs. May had called him out of concern of what her boys had seen. Flashlights in hand, they went to locate this strange light. 
As they reached the top of the hill, Lemon aimed his flashlight beam around the area and that's when they reportedly saw a 12 foot tall figure that had a round red face and that was surrounded by a pointed hood like a spade. It had on a metal dress and it had claws for hands. Even more terrifying than just the look of this creature was that it had glowing reddish orange eyes. As the group stared in terror, they also noticed a noxious smelling thick mist that was in the air. Through this mist and the pulsing red light, the creature then started to make a hissing sound as it began to glide toward the group who then screamed and ran for their lives. According to the reports, the dog was so scared it outran the group with its tail between its legs and one of the boys peed his pants. The group ran back to Mrs. May's house where she called the local authorities to report what she had witnessed. Now you might be thinking, okay, well that's a weird story, but trust me, this gets way more complicated than just a simple sighting. So, we know that the group saw something weird in the woods and called local authorities. And now this is where things get into the UFO conspiracy territory. After the authorities were called, they went out to the area and supposedly saw nothing. However, that did not stop the U.S. government from sending in a team to investigate. And this is where the information gets strange and messy. While I was doing my research, I found that there are many conflicting reports to this part of the story, so I'm going to do my best to explain what happened next. At the time that Mrs. May called the local sheriffs, he was two hours away at a plane crash site. Apparently, an airplane had crashed in a field and all the local authorities were over at this crash site. The sheriff did not make it out to investigate until either very late at night or the next morning. When he came to the area, he claimed that there were no strange smells, no ship, no monster, and the only thing he found were some track marks and an oily substance. When officers questioned the group the next day, they all reported seeing the same thing, a strange pulsing light, noxious gas, and the monster. The police set up the group with sketch artists, and when the sketch artists asked them what they saw, each sketch artist's drawing was really close to the same. So either they were all lying and had a rehearsed story, or they actually all saw the same thing. The other notable thing about the group was they were all visibly scared when talking about what they saw. The reports of this monster in the woods began to make headlines. Major radio and news stations started to pick up the story, and the now famous sketch of what was dubbed the Flatwoods Monster was seen by the general public. I will post a picture of it on Instagram and Facebook so you guys can see it. This monster is so unique that it is right out of a 1950s scary movie, but the group claimed it was real. And the monster sightings do not stop there. Two women claim to have seen the same thing just a town over. Now, when she and a friend saw this monster, it varies on news reports. Either it was the very next day or at least very soon after the first sighting. The woman and her friend were walking through the woods taking a shortcut to a nearby store when one of the women named Mrs. Harper suddenly saw a bright fireball in the corner of her eye. When she looked back to get a better look, she described the same looking monster gliding toward her with a hissing sound. She and her friend saw this creature and bolted. They also called local authorities to explain what they had seen. Another sighting happened one day after the first reports. This happened when a husband and wife were driving on Route 4 with their baby in the back seat. 
everything was going fine until the car suddenly died. As the husband was trying to restart the car, the couple began to smell a strange smell and they saw a mist overtake the car and their baby began to cry. As they were trying to figure out what was going on, they claimed to see a 10-foot-tall monster glide across the road in front of them. This had a lot of the same characteristics of the monster in a dress, but this time it was a little different. It didn't have its spade-shaped hood, and its face looked more reptilian. It drug its hand across the car as it crossed the road and then disappeared into the woods. The couple then were able to restart their car and drove to straight to the sheriff's station to report what they had seen. With the monster sightings hitting the news stations and radio, people began to flock to the small town to try to get a look at the monster. The government was also starting to get lots of questions from townsfolk and media, so they needed to have an explanation. And the explanation was that there was a meteor that, that night that did streak across the sky in the evening of September 12th. They said that the group probably saw the meteor and went looking in the woods, and the red light they saw was nothing more than a nearby radio tower, and they got scared because they saw a barn owl in a tree. They also talked about the group being from a small town, and they fell into a mass hysteria. The monster has never been seen again, but with all UFO stories, that is not the end of it. It turns out that the government did way more of an investigation than they let on. We now know that the U.S. government had a top-secret investigation branch they called Project Blue Book. This branch was specifically created to investigate UFOs. This was top secret until recently when the U.S. government released a lot of UFO information to the general public. And the History Channel has created a TV show called Project Blue Book that is based on these reports. Now, while the show might or might not be embellished a bit, the History Channel also takes a real look at the real documents. And the things that Project Blue Book found in this area was way different from what the sheriff said he saw. The document said that they went to the crash site and they did smell a weird smell in the air. They also saw a mist and they saw that the trees were singed on the top and branches were broken, as if something did come down in the area. They also found some kind of strange sludge or jelly-like substance, and in the end, the team could not prove or disprove that there had been an alien encounter. So, we now know the truth. So, the question is, why did the sheriff lie and say he didn't see much of anything? Well, here are some of the theories. Theory number one, this was all a government cover-up. <laughs> Many people believe that the sheriff was distracted on purpose with a planned plane crash a few hours away to give the government time to go investigate and possibly remove something they already knew was in the area. Or the government told them to lie about what was actually on the hill. Okay, so now here are the theories of what did the group see in the woods. Some do think that the group could have mistaken a barn owl for a scary alien in a dress. But I mean, okay, come on. First of all, how big is a barn owl? Not that big. Also, the way they reported it back then is just being an owl. It was so rude and they chalked it up to mass hysteria. They were rude and kind of blamed the group of being like small town, simple minded folk that easily get scared. So, looking back, it feels like the government did try to pass them off as being, you know, stupid hillbillies, when obviously I don't think that was true. This, again, contributes to the conflicting reports. Sure, the government says, you know, oh, they were just simple-minded folk who got scared, but then the sheriff's 
department who the sheriff himself said he didn't find anything. However, the group was so scared when they were describing what they saw. So there's a lot of conflicting reports. Many people think it was in fact an alien and the government came to cover it up or possibly the men in black. The Men in Black is not just a movie. In fact, the movie is actually based off of real Men in Black sightings. The Men in Black have been seen around many UFO crash sites around the world. They are always reported the same way, a group of men that have on black suits with black fedoras. They always travel in black sedans, and they always come to interview people who have claimed to see aliens. Sometimes after their visits, the people who were talking loud and proud of what they had seen suddenly stopped talking about it altogether. Many people believe that Mrs. May had been visited by them. And people in town said that they did see people in black walking around the town looking quite suspicious. No one knows who the men in black are. Some people think it is a deeper government thread and some people think that they are not human at all. But that is for another discussion because who or what the men in black are is a very long story. Today, the town of Sutton has a monster museum that also serves as the Braxton County's Visitor's Center. I will make sure to link the website down below so you guys can see that. Um, inside the museum, you can find history of the Flatwoods monster and lots of cool monster-type gifts. People still come to the area in search of the truth and hopefully have a run-in with the monster if he's still around. He even appears in a video game called Fallout 76. So, what do you think? Personally, I think that they did see something in the woods. I don't think we are alone in the universe, and I don't think all aliens are bad. I think that sometimes they might be refugees, and they might be trying to ask us for help. But as humans, we scream and run away from them and think they are trying to hurt us because of their looks. And we often call the government who shows up with massive guns, so I don't blame them for not wanting to make themselves known to humans. If you ever do run across an alien, maybe try to see if they need some help first before you go screaming and running away to call in the military. When you think about it like that, they might just be afraid of us as we are of them. never been shy about talking about my struggles with dyslexia, but I also think it is really important for people to know the signs so that they can get help. Dyslexia is a learning disability that is not well known, but it is way more common than you might think. In fact, 1 in 10 people are diagnosed with dyslexia. Some of the common signs is late talking, learning new words slowly, writing letters backwards, and a delay in reading and spelling. There is no cure for this, and although it's challenging, it does not mean that we are stupid because dyslexia does not affect intelligence. It is better for children to get diagnosed early so that they can get accommodations they need in school. If you are an adult and think that you might have it, it is never too late to ask for help. One website I find helpful is dyslexiaaid.org, where you can find out some great information. Understanding and educating others about dyslexia is just as important as diagnosing someone with it. For 
Fort Leavenworth is just 30 miles northwest of Kansas City, Kansas, and about 65 miles northeast of Topeka, Kansas. It is located close to the geographical center of the United States, on the border between Kansas and Missouri, and it overlooks the Missouri River. The town of Leavenworth is the largest city in the county of Leavenworth, and it was the first incorporated city in Kansas. Here's a fun fact, Kansas City, Kansas and Kansas City, Missouri together make up the largest metropolitan area. They are separated by a 10-mile border. Half of the border is an imaginary line separating Kansas and Missouri. The other half is the Missouri River itself. Kansas City, Kansas was settled first in 1821, but it wasn't given an official name until the 1880s. Kansas City, Missouri was founded in 1850 and officially was named Kansas City in 1889. The name Kansas comes from the local Kansas Indians. Fort Leavenworth is the oldest active United States Army post west of the Mississippi River. The fort opened on May 8, 1827, and it was one of a number of forts that Colonel Henry Leavenworth built as the United States expanded westward. Its main purpose was to protect the settlers and merchants heading west along the Santa Fe Trail. This trail was used by American traders and settlers beginning in 1812 and lasted until 1880. People traveling southwest would go from Independence, Missouri to Santa Fe, New Mexico. Wagon trains could continue west on the Oregon or California Trail depending on their destination. Some were heading out to California or Colorado during their gold rushes, and others were seeking land for farming in California or Oregon. The trail was also used to carry supplies and other commercial goods. The extension of the railroad system to Santa Fe in 1880 replaced the need for this trail. Henry Leavenworth died in Indian Territory of Oklahoma on July 21, 1834. His cause of death was either an accident while buffalo hunting or illness. He was initially buried at Delhi, Oklahoma, but later his remains were moved to the Fort Leavenworth National Cemetery. The fort became the headquarters for the United States Dragoons, which was the Army's first permanent mounted regiment. During the Mexican-American War from 1846 to 1848, the fort became well known for training excellent soldiers. Colonel Stephen W. Kearney was the commander of about 1,700 soldiers who first assembled at Fort Leavenworth. His army played a key part in taking control of New Mexico and California. Leavenworth also supplied the Army of the West during the war. In 1858, an ordnance depot was established at the fort. The ordnance was responsible for the supply and storage of weapons, ammunition, and other related equipment. By 1960, it covered 138 acres and was officially named Leavenworth Arsenal. When whispers started of a civil war beginning in America, most of the people living in the town of Leavenworth were pro-slavery. This was true for many settlers of northeastern Kansas and northwestern Missouri. Once the Civil War started in 1861, the fort was very important to the Union because it provided top-notch training to their Kansas volunteers. In 1861, the arsenal was threatened by Confederate sympathizers. The Union Army readied itself for a possible attack by ordering several infantry companies to Fort Leavenworth from Fort Kearney. An artillery battery was built on the highest hill west of the fort. On top of the artillery battery, they mounted two siege and garrison guns. 
They also dug two rifle pits and other places for guns to be used. This area was named Fort Sully. Two other gun positions were built south and west of the parade grounds and the Fort Hospital. If the Confederate Army were able to get a hold of Fort Leavenworth, they would have had a strong control over the region. The Confederate Army in the area was led by General Sterling Price, who had been a Union Army general during the Mexican-American War, leading to the 2nd Missouri Mounted Volunteer Regiment. Price and his men were victorious in battle of Wilson's Creek in Missouri, but the closest the Confederates got to Leavenworth was 50 miles. Fortunately, the Confederates were forced to retreat south to Arkansas before ever reaching Leavenworth. The fort was also in charge of supplying two smaller forts in the area, Fort Riley and Fort Laramie. Fort Riley was a prison for Confederate soldiers. Later, it became the home fort for General Custard's 7th Cavalry. Leavenworth Armory stayed in operation throughout the Civil War, but in 1872, the United States Army decided to transfer the arsenal duties to the Rock Island Arsenal in Illinois. Following the Civil War, the main purpose of the fort returned to trying to maintain the peace between Native Americans and the many settlers and travelers in the area. Now, I say peace with a big quotation sign because... We all know what that meant back then, and it was tragic, and I, everything about what the Americans did to the Native American people really upsets me, so I don't like to talk about it, but it is history, so I am going to talk about it a little bit. It just makes my skin crawl whenever I do this history. Fort Leavenworth was an important destination for travelers where they could rest, do repairs, and replace necessary supplies. There were also many conflicts with Native Americans living on the Great Plains as more and more people came onto their land. Fort Leavenworth was a key part of trying to keep the peace, quote, quote. It was also important as an outfitting post for the U.S. Army in the West. The United States Congress approved the formation of four African-American regiments in 1866. They were the 24th and 25th Infantry Regiment and the 9th and 10th Cavalry Regiment. The 10th Cavalry operated out of Fort Leavenworth under Colonel Benjamin Gearson. The unit served in the West from about 1866 to 1909. The African-American units were given a nickname of Buffalo Soldiers by the Plain Indians, and the name stuck. The 10th Cavalry continued to operate as an African-American unit into World War II until it was deactivated in 1944, and then it was reactivated in 1958, but this time it was an integrated unit. The Buffalo Soldier Monument at Fort Leavenworth honors the African-American soldiers of both the 9th and 10th Regiments. General Colin Powell first had the idea for the monument, and it was dedicated in 1992. For those of you who don't know, General Colin Powell is a retired four-star general, and he became the United States of America's first African-American Secretary of State in 2001. He also graduated from the college at Fort Leavenworth. Fort Leavenworth became more than just a fort in 1875 when a maximum security military prison was opened. General William T. Sherman started a school of application for cavalry and infantry in 1881. Its name was changed to the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. There have been several notable graduates of this school. For instance, Generals Dwight D. Eisenhower, Omar Bradley, 
George Patton, and David Petraeus. The Indian Wars of the West were a terrible part of the United States history. For example, about 400 Nez Perce Indians were shipped from Fort Leavenworth after being brutally pursued and captured in 1877. In 1889, they were forced to go to a reservation in Oklahoma. At the turn of the century, the United States Army Command and General Staff College really began to be noticed for training quality Army officers. Graduates were an important part of the American Expeditionary Forces in World War I. The AEF fought alongside France, Britain, Canada, and Australia against the German Army. During World War II, about 19,000 officers completed training at Fort Leavenworth, and many of the key generals of World War II had graduated from the college here. Today, Fort Leavenworth is home to the United States Army Combined Arms Center, the United States Army Command and General Staff College, and the United States Disciplinary Barracks also continue to operate here as well. The base supports approximately 3,700 active duty personnel and 2,800 civilians. Fort Leavenworth has a 213-acre National Historic Landmark District, which includes 231 buildings. There are also six other historic buildings located outside of the National Historic Landmark District. In the city of Leavenworth, there are several historic districts. Two are located downtown, and five others are residential areas close to downtown. The historical sites of Fort Leavenworth include the National Cemetery that was officially established by President Lincoln in 1862, but burials started there in 1846. More than 20,000 veterans from every war since the War of 1812 are buried here. Another historic site is the main parade grounds, which was the center of the fort's activities. Reviews and parades were held here during the 1800s. When I announced what location I was doing for this episode, I had a listener named Lisa reach out to me and tell me about the time that she lived at the fort. Her father was going to the college at the fort, and she lived there for 11 months. She told me that when she was a kid, she used to see buffalo grazing on the lawn in front of the prison, and I decided to look into it. While I could not find any information about the buffalo that might have lived at or around the fort, I did find an old picture of buffalo grazing in front of the prison. I decided to take a quick look at the history of buffalo in America because I think that this is a really important part of American history. And thank you so much, Lisa, for telling me your story because I would never have looked into this if you didn't tell me about it. So if you don't live in America or you have never seen a buffalo before, the largest land animal living in North America is the American bison, also called the buffalo. Males can weigh as much as 2,000 pounds and females 1,000 pounds. Before white settlers began settling in the Kansas Territory, it was estimated that there were 20 million buffalo living on the Great Plains. The Plains Indians hunted the buffalo and used every bit of the animal, meat for food, and they used the hides for clothing and shelter. The bones were made into tools and weapons. They also believed that the buffalo was both a physical and spiritual being. They only hunted for what they needed. Unfortunately, the white settlers that just came to the area soon realized that the large buffalo herds could be turned into money. First, buffalo meat was sold to feed the railroad crews that were working on the Santa Fe and Kansas Pacific rail lines. Leather companies figured out how to use the hides by 1972. Buffalo hunters began only taking the hides and left the rest of the carcasses to rot. This overhunting greatly shrunk the size of the buffalo herds. 
farmers began gathering the bones and sold them to companies back east where they were used to make fertilizer, combs, toothbrush handles, and other items. Eventually, people started to see that this was a huge mistake. By the late 1800s, there were only a few hundred bison left in the whole country. They were completely gone from the state of Kansas. When there were only 20 bison counted at Yellowstone National Park in 1894, the U.S. Congress passed a law outlawing the killing of buffalo. The penalty was a fine of $1,000 or prison time, and back then $1,000 would have been a lot of money. In the early 1900s, people began to work together to try to rebuild the buffalo population. They started to try to repopulate bison back into the wild as well. Buffalo became the official animal of Kansas in 1955, and today the fifth largest bison population lives in Kansas. They can be seen at several state parks and ranches. Thank you everyone for listening to that little history about the buffalo, and also thank you Lisa for bringing that up because I didn't even think to include it even though I should have because like I said, the buffalo history is really important to North America. Now that I have given you guys a quick history of the fort and of course the buffalo, I hope that you guys are ready because this place is really haunted. It's got its historical district and I'm going to go over more buildings with more history in here as well. When I started my research on this location, I had no idea what a gold mine for paranormal activity it was. I am so glad that this was suggested to me or I might never have found it. I was blown away at how different each haunting is and how spread out it all is. I will post a picture of the map from a walking tour pamphlet that I found online so that you guys can have an idea of the scope of how all over the place these haunted spots are. While some of the places I'm going to talk about are not marked on a map, you can still get the overall scope of how the base is set up and the historical areas are open for the public. All right, I hope you guys have your virtual walking shoes on because this is going to be a long walking ghost tour. starting off with the house at the address of 632 Thomas Avenue. This is believed to be the location that the original St. Ignatius Chapel once stood. It caught fire and burnt to the ground in 1875, sadly claiming the life of Father Fred. After the fire, a house was built in its place, and they used what was salvageable from the chapel to rebuild the home. Many bricks were used, and you can still see some of the bricks around the fireplace in the dining room. These bricks have names etched into them, and one says Father Fred. Now, people who have stayed in the home have reported seeing a figure they believe to be Father Fred. A man in priest's robes has been seen throughout the home, walking up and down the staircase, and hanging out in the kitchen. People who have lived in the home also reportedly heard the sound of an old sewing machine being used. Many think this is Father Fred, and he's just repairing his robes. And on one occasion, the family living in the home found some thread on the floor. Up next, we have the old chief staff quarters. Now, this story might be short and sweet, but I think it's kind of cool. This home has the sound of a tea party going on in the parlor. People have reported to hear the sound of women softly murmuring, along with the sound of tea being poured, glasses clinking, and tea being stirred when the room is completely empty. 
The general's residence is also haunted, but this one really surprised me because we have a famous ghost that likes to hang out here. You can find none other than General George Custard roaming the first floor. If you live in America, chances are that you have heard the name Custer at least once. General Custer is famous for his disastrous battle at Little Bighorn in 1876, also known as Custard's Last Stand, where he led his men, the 7th Cavalry, with 700 soldiers into an ambush that killed 268 of his soldiers. It was also a bad day for Custard's family because Custer, two of his brothers, a nephew, and his brother-in-law all died in this botched attack. The reason people think that Custard haunts the general's residence is because he was court-martialed here in 1867. He was found guilty of ditching his troops during an attack, and he was punished without pay for one year. But they reinstated him the next year. When you look at his record, it makes you ask, why did you reinstate him? I bet after the Battle of Little Bighorn, the generals were asking themselves the same question. Anyway, Custard's ghost does like to hang out here because he has been seen pacing around the first floor. You can also hear him stomping around in his boots at night, as well as shadow figures that like to pass throughout all the rooms. Up next is the old disciplinary barracks. Now, I spent about an hour trying to look at old pictures to understand the layout of this space, but I couldn't figure it out because so much has changed over the years. The first building was built in 1863 and the rest was built over time until the last building was built in 1964. After it closed down in 2003, parts of the old prison were demolished and the remaining buildings were remodeled into offices. During its operation, it housed some famous criminals, like a gangster nicknamed Machine Gun Kelly and a serial killer named Carl Pansman. During its heyday, the prison had 12 guard towers, and even while the prison was in operation, Tower Number 8 was known to have a lot of paranormal activity. But the hauntings really ramped up when they closed down Tower Number 8. They closed it off so that no one could easily get inside. Ever since Tower Number 8 was closed, guards on patrol would report seeing shadow figures darting past the windows. There would be frequent phone calls from the empty Tower Number 8, and when the guards would answer, they only heard static. There is also a story about one time when officers in a patrol car were passing by the tower. They claimed to see a man with a rifle standing in the tower. They called it in, and after a search, they found no one. All of the remaining buildings and towers seem to be haunted. The sound of footsteps in empty hallways and on the stairs are frequent. Full-bodied apparitions of guards and prisoners have been seen as well as disembodied voices. Building 65 was once the prison hospital, and it has some creepy ghost stories to tell. This building seems to have a haunted elevator. There is an urban legend that the elevator shaft was used to hang prisoners of war during World War II. People have claimed to hear screaming from the elevator shaft and the elevator runs on its own. There is also a report of an apparition of a man in a wheelchair who is being pushed by a nurse. People see this apparition go down a hallway and then they vanish at the end. Furniture also moves on its own, and things go missing quite frequently. The officer's quarters is up next. This building has a lot of different paranormal activity. Cold spots have been reported throughout the building, even on hot days. The sound of stomping boots going up and down the staircase, doors like to slam, and the sound of screaming have been heard. 
There is also a loud crash noise that happens at random times, but when people go to investigate, they can't find any reason for the sound. The main apparition seen in the home is a man with an 1800-style mustache. He likes to wander all over the building, and he has even been caught shaving in one of the bathrooms before he vanished into thin air. The Rookery Building is not just the oldest home on the base, but it is the oldest building in the state. It was built in 1827, and according to multiple websites I looked at, it's the most haunted house in the state. There is also an article on usarmy.com, of all places, that talks about a family who moved into the home not ready for how haunted it was. There are many ghosts that are said to haunt this home, and it is really active. There were many claims I found online, from doors opening and closing on their own, cold spots, footsteps, and even the sound of lady skirts swooshing on the landing can be heard. There are reports of an apparition of a woman with long hair who likes to rush at people, and as she runs towards you, she will be clawing at you with her hands, and she will vanish right as she gets to you. No one really knows who this woman is, but a lot of people feel like by the way she acts, it is believed that she could have died due to violence, which is really sad. Another ghost that haunts the home is an elderly woman who likes to sit and stand in the corner of the parlor. Another strange vision people see is a young girl throwing a tantrum. When people go over to see what is wrong, she vanishes. A man in the late 1800s nightshirt also likes to wander around the bedrooms where people are trying to sleep. He has been known to wake them up as he passes by the bed. In the article about the hauntings the family experienced was from 2009, and I have a link to that page down below to cite my sources and so you can read it yourself. But the family who was living inside the home said that they started to experience things right away. The husband's name was Lieutenant Colonel Carlos and his wife's name was Anne. Once they moved in, the paranormal activity started right away with things disappearing and reappearing weeks later in really random places in the home. It all started with a cell phone, then a TV remote, and then the digital recorder that had all gone missing. A few weeks later, all three items were found neatly stacked inside of Anne's purse and there was nothing in the purse the night before when the family had gone out to dinner. Other things that have happened in the home are lights turning on and off on their own and strange banging noises that happen all night. Our next haunted location is the Subner Place. So the Subner Place is famous for the ghost called the Woman in Black. People believe that she is an old housekeeper who might have passed away in the home in the 1800s. When people see her, they report seeing a middle-aged woman who wears a black dress with a black shawl. She has been known to help out around the home, but don't let her acts of kindness fool you. She has been known to be possessive over children. She will appear to children who are having tantrums, and she will try to calm them down. She has even been known to read to children at night. Over time, she slowly starts to physically harm people she does not think are good for the children in the home. People have reported being scratched and pushed by unseen hands. She got so possessive over a family once that the family reportedly had an exorcism done. But she didn't move too far because she just moved to the home next door and she still comes and goes back to her old room that was in the attic in the Subner house. People still say that they see her staring out the window of the attic. We will be finishing off the tour with the National Cemetery. People visiting the graveyard have seen many shadow figures and heard disembodied voices. The sound of footsteps following close behind you is also common. The most famous ghost in this area is Catherine Sutler, and this is a rather tragic story. So Catherine and her husband and her two children came out west from Indiana. 
They needed to set up camp at the fort for a couple of days before continuing onto the Oregon Trail. On the first day of their stay, Catherine sent her children, Ethan and Mary, out to gather firewood, but they never returned to the fort. Search parties were sent out looking for the children for several days, but after about a week of searching, they declared that the children had probably fallen into the Missouri River and drowned. Some stories say that her husband went back to Indiana, but Catherine refused to leave and continued searching for her children all throughout the winter. She walked all over the bluffs calling for them, even though they were covered in snow. Eventually, she came down with pneumonia and died. After she passed away, it was discovered that the children had been rescued from the Missouri River by a group of Fox Indians. They took care of Ethan and Mary during the winter until they could be brought back to the fort in the springtime. Sadly, Catherine had passed away, not knowing her children were safe. Because she never knew they were safe, it is believed that is why her ghost still haunts the area. After she passed away, people have reported seeing Catherine wandering around the fort. She is dressed in a calico dress, carrying a lantern, calling out for her children. Some people have even heard her calling out the names Ethan and Mary. It is really sad to think that this poor woman is still searching for her children, even though they survived. Wow, what an amazing place to talk about. There was so much history and paranormal activity to explore. I could not cover everything because it seems like literally every building is haunted. I wanted to say thank you again to Elise, Leah, and Ivan for the suggestion on this location, and I hope I did it justice. I could not get over how many ghosts haunt the location and how spread out it all is. I had so much fun learning about the fort, and I hope you guys did too. I have been going through a lot of personal things over the last few months, so it's been really hard for me to work on episodes as much as I used to, but I just wanted to say thank you guys so much for listening. I am always working on the next episode, even when I don't have time to type up my scripts or record. I'm still always doing research on my phone or taking notes. I am really enjoying making these episodes for everyone who also loves history and haunted locations. If you ever wanted to find out more about me, please check out my Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages, all in the links down below in the show notes, along with all of my sources. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope that you all stay healthy and safe, and I will see you guys again soon for another episode. Bye, everybody.